0: You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a certified medical director in long-term care. How can we minimize the functional decline of our patients with dementia while also preventing any associated complications? Joining us to discuss dementia Is Doctor Alva Baker, faculty member of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neuropsychiatry of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome, Buzz, and thanks for being with us today on our program.
1: Sure, it's a pleasure.
0: Well, tell us first of all, who's at risk for developing new or progressive dementia?
1: Well, dementia is primarily a disease of the older population and particularly Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common cause of dementia. And that occurs most commonly in folks over 65 years of age.
0: Well, you've been medical director at Copper Ridge for many years. That sounds like a population that even upon entry is going to have a large number of people that are demented.
1: Yes. In fact, everybody who moves into Copper Ridge comes there because they have already received a diagnosis of dementia. Do
0: you want to tell us a little bit about your facility and how specific it is to the care of the dementia patients?
1: Well, Copper Ridge is a facility that was specifically designed to provide care in an environment that also supports education and research for persons with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of cognitive impairment. So to that end, we have 126 residents who live there. Sixty of them live in an assisted living environment, and 66 of them live in a skilled nursing environment. The facility was architecturally designed. And the program of care was also designed specifically for the person who has cognitive impairment. So in the architectural design, we have areas for wandering. The entire facility is secure, and so the residents may wander in their units throughout any part of that. The program was designed in collaboration with our colleagues from the neuropsychiatry group at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and that started actually about 18 years ago with that collaboration, and so we have developed the program. When Copper Ridge opened in 1994, the program was ready to be up and running, but we have in the intervening years consistently done research about how to improve the model of care.
0: As we stay with the concept of your inpatient facilities, you've got uh, people that have probably progressed beyond cognitive to more functional and behavioral abnormalities. What specifically do you do for the behavioral problems that you have there at Copper Ridge?
1: We have a way of helping the staff recognize and then analyze challenging behavioral symptoms. And so that comes through a program that was developed at Hopkins, which is called the 5D Approach And in that approach, the staff are asked to thoroughly describe an incident that is happening, to then work on decoding it or looking at potential reasons for why the incident may have occurred, then to devise a plan for intervention to implement that plan or to do it, and lastly then to decide whether that plan is working or not through regular monitoring and feedback. So the staff are educated and trained in that from the line staff all the way through the senior administrative staff, and that is a constant approach that we have to working with behavioral symptoms. Of course, the most challenging thing to do with behavioral symptoms is to try to make sure that, first and foremost, non-pharmacologic measures and methodologies are used to try to impact on patient behaviors. To that extent, We use activities programming as a primary way of keeping residents engaged, not letting them be idle or become bored, fully believing that idle hands are the devil's workshop, as I think the old saying used to go. And we want our residents to be doing things that they enjoy and that they can do despite their continually increasing functional and cognitive impairments.
0: Can you give us any specific examples that you know our listening audience might be able to apply at their facility once they've identified the behaviors are present and need to be addressed?
1: Sure. So let's talk about a couple of different situations. One of the common reasons for the development of behavioral symptoms, of course, is the development of delirium. And in our population, that frequently may be related to medication use or it may be related to an infection such as a urinary tract infection. So as part of the decoding process for, let's say, when a resident has developed negative physical interactions with another resident, either striking out at them or actually hitting them, then part of the investigation is to say, well, could this be a problem such as delirium or such as an infection? and to check on those things as part of the evaluation. What's important is to not just assume that the behaviors are happening because of progression of the degenerative brain disease that the residents have, but to make sure we give a comprehensive and thorough evaluation of the resident for all possible causes of the behavior. Another example might be the resident who has wandering behaviors or exit-seeking behaviors in particular. The resident who is constantly at the doorway trying to get out as other staff or family members leave or the resident who may be calling out about going home and an approach to that kind of behavior is to help ensure that the resident is really constantly engaged in some kind of activity. Now activities for our residents are certainly not customarily in the range of things such as bingo but the variety of activities have to be made available and they have to be tailored to the resident's interest, to their cognitive abilities, and also to their functional abilities. And providing an appropriate activities program for somebody such as that who is exit-seeking can go a long way towards diverting them away from that behavior and keeping them from focusing on that particular behavior.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long Term Care Medicine from Reach MD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss dementia is Dr. Alva Baker, faculty member of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neuropsychiatry of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So, how do you go about training up your staff or even talking with family members about what the expectations are going to be and how you're going to accomplish your tasks and goals?
1: Well, with regards to the staff, we have certainly a standard kind of employee orientation, but then everybody who works in the facility at Copper Ridge has an eight-hour dementia care training program that they must partake in. And then we also have regular and ongoing staff conferences and educational sessions. And our colleagues from Hopkins are indeed very important in helping us to sustain that educational environment. Licensed staff, the licensed practical nurses and the registered nurses, in addition to that, have a 16 hour training program, eight hours of which is didactic and eight hours of which is supervised clinical experience, during which they learn an awful lot about the different causes of dementia, how different kinds of dementia can impact persons, how behaviors can be related in some ways, at some times, to different causes of dementia, and then how to make an assessment of the person who is cognitively impaired, from the mental status examination to the cognitive examination to the physical assessment when something is happening that may imply that there is some kind of physical problem going on. We feel it's very important that our staff have the ability to understand the causes of dementia and what dementia is, what the disease is doing to the brain, and how that is impacting on function and behavior. And they need to have the ability to adequately assess residents and develop a comprehensive picture of them if they're going to need to talk with the attending physician, either the geriatrician who is the attending physician, or the collaborating attending physician who is the
0: neuropsychiatrist. Let's talk a little bit about some of the additional treatments and the role nutrition plays in patients with dementia.
1: Nutrition plays obviously an extremely important role in each one of us. And the challenges that we have in taking care of the person with dementia is that frequently that person will not take in enough nutrients So as the disease progresses, for example, they may recognize non-food items as food and eat those items, and so that's always the challenge, the necessity of maintaining an environment that is as free as possible of things that people can injure themselves with if they were to chew on them or eat them. But the ongoing problem that they all develop over time is simply not eating well and sometimes that's due to the fact that their sense of smell has deteriorated and they don't enjoy food anymore. Sometimes that's due to the fact that they have bad dentition and they cannot chew food adequately. They may have had dentures and lost them, for example. It's not uncommon for the dementia patient to discard or lose their dentures in some way. And the bottom line of all that is they don't get in adequate calories and they don't get in adequate nutrients, including micronutrients. So approaches to that are to, A, structure meal time so that folks can eat in as pleasing an environment as it can be to them, that the dining environment is a nice dining environment to which the person can respond. To not provide them with a plate with lots of different kinds of food on it, but to make eating as simple as possible. If they're starting to have functional challenges with eating independently, to provide them whatever mechanical aids that the occupational therapy staff may recommend to help them remain independent. And if they can no longer manipulate knives or forks or spoons to see if they will eat finger foods and to be able to get them to eat that way. Since as we go through that process, there is the challenge of having fewer and fewer calories and perhaps an unbalanced kind of diet, then we have to try to get nutrient-dense foods for them to eat, as well as to try to get as much as we can in terms of all the required nutrients. There's no question that some patients, as they progress through their disease, simply develop a taste for one or another kind of food. And we believe that at that point in time, that resident should be permitted to eat whatever it is that they will eat. And we'd rather have them eat that, for example, than to not eat anything. So we have had residents at our community who have been on a donut diet, because that's all they would eat for a couple of weeks. Or one of our nursing assistants realized the resident would eat maple syrup, and they put maple syrup on everything, and the resident ate everything, whether it was meat, vegetables, potatoes, or pancakes. That doesn't usually last for a very long period of time, but at least they're getting some kind of caloric energy into them rather than to continue to have the potential for significant weight loss in the face of inadequate caloric nutrition.
0: What current research is underway for dementia and what does the future hold in store for us?
1: Of course, there is the national emphasis on finding the cause and the cure for Alzheimer's disease. And that is critically important research and something that too few resources are being allocated towards, in my opinion. The other kind of research that is important, we believe, is research about how to provide the best possible care for the person who has dementia. And our philosophy about that at Copper Ridge is that is primarily the research that we do, is looking for how to improve care methodologies. We firmly believe that while calls and cure are critically important, there has to be care while we wait for the cure. All too often, families and staffs and communities in residential care settings are challenged because they do not have adequate information or they have not been given the results of research that says this really works best for an awful lot of people and this is something that you should try to incorporate into your care model.
0: Buzz, any comment about drug therapies that we might employ even in the nursing home for our patients?
1: Certainly a lot of our dementia patients benefit from drug therapy aimed at their disease. So the cognitive-enhancing drugs may be very beneficial for some residents, certainly not for all. Behavior management drugs are ones that are, are more problematic because behavior management drugs don't always help the behaviors, and sometimes they cause other side effects that may be distressing. Unfortunately, with a lot of dementia patients, behavior management drugs become critical to their simply being able to stay in a facility because of the behavioral issues and the fact that in long-term care, we simply have to have a very low tolerance level for people who are
0: physically abusive of other residents. I would like to thank my guest from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Alva Baker. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.